Good evening. This is Rob McClure along with Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that Milwaukee Bucks executive Alex Lazary has dropped out of the Democratic U.S. Senate race after having spent more than $12.3 million of his own personal fortune on the contest. Lazary has now endorsed the frontrunner, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. His action follows the withdrawal of County Executive Tom Nelson from the race. Lazary said that after looking at the data, he saw no clear path to win and wanted instead to unite and rally his support to defeat Republican incumbent Ron Johnson. Meanwhile, State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski told reporters today that she had no intention of dropping out of the race. The partisan primary takes place on August 9th. Campaign staffers for Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Mandela Barnes have unanimously voted to unionize. The vote, first shared with the Capital Times, comes after two months of negotiations between campaign management and staff. A staffer said the negotiations were friendly and the decision to unionize was well received by both campaign management and Barnes. Barnes's staffers will be represented by the Campaign Workers Guild, a union formed in 2017 that specializes in representing workers for political campaigns. The union also represents field organizers for the Democratic Party of Wisconsin. Rio Diaz, the leader of the Barnes campaign staff union, said in a statement that the union contract agreed by the two sides will guarantee fair wages and access to the benefits that they deserve. The Wisconsin Department of Justice has reached an agreement on key financial terms with opioid maker Teva, which would provide up to $4.25 billion to participating states and local governments. Teva makes fentanyl products for cancer pain and a number of generic opioids, including oxycodone. The agreement states that Teva will pay a maximum of $4.25 billion in cash over 13 years. As part of the financial term, Teva will provide up to $1.2 billion in generic naloxone over a 10-year period. Naloxone is used to counteract overdoses. Attorney General Josh Call said that in the said that the agreement, if finalized, is a significant step in fighting the opioid epidemic here in Wisconsin, and that he will continue to push for accountability from companies who contributed to the epidemic. The State Department of Natural Resources has announced it will provide free voluntary sampling for PFAS for municipal water systems. Channel 3000 reports that starting next year, the DNR will require public water systems to test for PFAS. The Wisconsin DNR set the standard for acceptable levels of the forever chemical at 70 parts per trillion. But earlier this year, the EPA released interim acceptable PFAS levels of less than one part per trillion and plans to release final levels in 2023. Kyle Burton, a field operations director for the DNR, says that they will change Wisconsin's standard to those set by the EPA once that report is finalized. It's another week here in Madison, which means another downtown development project. This week, the city approved the demolition of the buildings on Regent Street between Park and East Campus Drive. This includes the Faith Community Church, the former Frabonis, two houses, and the Buckingham Bar, uh, the former site of DeSalvo's grocery store. 
The State Journal reports that these sites will be replaced by a 10-story building with 178 apartments and 3,000 square feet of commercial space. The Buckingham Bar site was originally the DeSalvo Grocery Store. It was constructed 99 years ago and is one of the few remaining structures that were part of the Greenbush neighborhood. Most of that neighborhood was demolished in the 1960s as part of the city's urban renewal efforts. Beautiful but increasingly crowded downtown Madison. And now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Almost 10% of Wisconsinites aged 18 to 64 have some form of disability. But a recent state Supreme Court decision may make it more difficult for disabled people to cast their votes. A new lawsuit filed by four Wisconsin voters says that, indeed, without assistance filling out their ballots, they won't be able to vote at all. Our producer, Nate Wegehaupt, has more. Four Wisconsin voters with disabilities filed a lawsuit last week against the Wisconsin Elections Commission over guidance that other people may not be able to help a voter place an absentee ballot in the mail. The lawsuit says that by not allowing voters with disabilities to have some assistance in casting their ballot, the Elections Commission violates several federal protection laws, as well as both their First and Fourteenth Amendment rights. Scott Thompson is staff counsel with Law Forward, a nonpartisan and nonprofit legal firm, and is representing the voters in the case. He says that the lawsuit aims to clarify current absentee voting laws. So voters with disabilities here in Wisconsin deserve clarification. Um, it's important that they feel secure in the bedrock federal civil rights protections that guard their right to vote. These protections include reasonable accommodations at their polling places, but they also include assistance from a third party so that they can cast their ballot. The lawsuit points to the Voting Rights Act, which requires that all voters with disabilities may have assistance voting. Additionally, the Americans with Disabilities Act states that public entities must not have any policies that interfere with a disabled person's vote. The lawsuit was filed in federal court, and Thompson says that they are looking for two main results. We're asking the court to enjoin the Elections Commission from prohibiting this ballot return assistance, and we're also asking the court to declare that these voters are entitled to use ballot return assistance when they cast their absentee ballots. The lawsuit revolves around a comment made by Elections Commission Administrator Megan Wolf, saying that voters could only turn in their own absentee ballots. Wolf made that statement in a press conference after a state Supreme Court ruling in an election case earlier this month. The court found that the use of absentee ballot drop boxes is illegal and that absentee ballots that are handed to clerks in person must be done by the voter. The court did not come to a conclusion on placing an absentee ballot in the mail. The Elections Commission later clarified that Wolf's statement was not a policy statement. Thompson says that even if they can't sue the state of Wisconsin over the rules, they are still able to find relief. And here, the state is exposed, or the state agency is exposed, because of the comments that Megan Wolf made, um, and that she herself has actually not retracted. Um, she said that people have to mail their own ballot, which is, which is further than the Supreme Court was even willing to go. The Wisconsin Elections Commission could not be reached for comment by airtime. 
The plaintiffs in the lawsuit are four Wisconsin residents with disabilities, all of whom require assistance in delivering their ballot. Timothy Carey, one of the plaintiffs, lives in Appleton and has Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Unable to move his hands, Thompson says that Carey is physically unable to vote without assistance. Their disabilities are such that they can't physically put the absentee ballot in the mail or they can't physically hand it over to the clerk. And most importantly, that is the only way these voters can vote. They can't actually go to the polling place on Election Day. And so as a result, uh, these new rules um, or this confusion that has been created in our voting ecosystem really threatens uh, their right to vote. The next election is the partisan primary election on August 9th. The fall general election takes place on November 8th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Over the past several years, misinformation about elections and election administration have spread like wildfire, fueling partisan election reviews and conspiracy theories in Wisconsin and across the country. A new campaign aims to dispel those myths by teaching more Wisconsinites how the electoral process functions. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. In the next few months, the Wisconsin Elections Commission will roll out a new public information campaign aimed at teaching folks more about how elections work. Among other goals, the initiative will show people how to register to vote, how elections are secured, how to become a poll worker, and what happens at polling places on election days. Riley Vetterkind, the WEC's public information officer, told commissioners last week the project is in response to a, quote, steady influx of questions and concerns about the elections process. A lot of the questions that we've received have been based in uh, misunderstandings about the fundamentals of how elections work. And so in order to address this, we wanted to come up with a project that could help educate the public in a fun and engaging way. Misinformation has spread like wildfire in recent years, including by former President Donald Trump during and after the November 2020 election. Citing that misinformation, several prominent Wisconsin Republican lawmakers, including the chair of the state assembly's election committee, have called for decertifying the election results, which experts say is impossible. Vetterkin says the first prong of the campaign aims to reach high school students through social studies and civics classes, with the second half aimed at adults through print and broadcast public service announcements. Vetterkin says the initiative is strictly nonpartisan and not a get-out-the-vote campaign. To the extent that it talks about voter registration is, is simply in a mechanical way. It's just one important part of the election process. And so um, I, I just can't emphasize enough that this is not meant to be a voter registration campaign in any way. Wisconsin's partisan primary election is August 9th and the general election is November 8th. While the deadline to register online for the primary has passed, folks can still register to vote at their clerk's office until August 5th at 5 p.m. or they can register in person on election day. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 6.17 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
The group Wisconsin Watch has undertaken a series of articles investigating efforts to combat food insecurity in Wisconsin. To find out more about it, our reporter Reed Kamai spoke with Dee Hall, the editor of the series at Wisconsin Watch. Last week, Wisconsin Watch debuted a new investigative article series called Beyond Hunger. It digs into some of the food aid programs that exist in Wisconsin, what can be done to further combat food insecurity, and how the pandemic has affected all of this. Here to discuss is the managing editor of Wisconsin Watch, D.J. Hall. Dee, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. So first off, beyond what I laid out uh, just now, give us an overview of the Beyond Hunger series and the finer topics you're looking to explore. So just as a backdrop, this uh, series was reported by my investigative reporting class at the UW-Madison. Each spring semester, we dig into a topic of interest to the people of Wisconsin. This year, we decided to look at food insecurity, since that was such a big issue, especially during the pandemic. So what we tried to do is look at food insecurity from a bunch of different perspectives uh, uh, in terms of both uh, what changed during the pandemic, the history of food assistance in in the United States, which began in 1939, uh, you know, the increased use in emergency food systems like food banks, which were up up to 40 percent uh, in some cases um, in uh, during the pandemic. Um, we're also examining several of the changes that were made to food assistance programs um, during the pandemic, some of which there's some pressure to continue and others which uh, there's some pressure to discontinue. That would be free school meals as an example, uh, increases in the, um, the monthly allocation that people get for food share, um, lifting the work requirements for Wisconsin's uh, food share program. That was done during the pandemic. Now there's an effort to try to restore those. Um, so, so we look at it. We also look at issues like food waste, for example, and reducing food waste. There's some controversial aspects to that, as a matter of fact, which is uh, people will be interested to read about. Um, and so we're looking at it from a whole bunch of different perspectives. We're also looking at food deserts. Where are they in Wisconsin? What are the efforts uh, underway to try to combat those places where you have a lot of people uh, who don't have easy access to good, nutritious food? So those are some of the topics that we'll be digging into. Yeah, it sounds like sounds like an an interesting topic to dig into, and so yeah, so you, so you went into into some of the in, into some of the topics. What just sort of generally speaking is the current state of food insecurity in in Wisconsin now? Now I know the the first story that came out uh, broke this down a little bit. So right now, um, it, it was measured just before the pandemic. Uh, an estimated one in twelve people in Wisconsin was considered to be food insecure. So again, that's not starving, but these are people who aren't sure they're going to have enough money <clears throat> to afford the groceries that they and their family need. Um, this number is uh, higher when you just look at how many children are food insecure in Wisconsin. That's, that's one in five, which is higher than the national average. Um, and then when you break that down even further, what you find out is there's a great racial disparity there where children who are African-American are much more likely to be food insecure than than children who are white. So there's a lot of nuances to it. It's not a one size fits all when it comes to food insecurity in Wisconsin. So that's one that that's that's one way to look at it. Interestingly enough, there there aren't some good measurements yet. But it is thought that the level of food insecurity during the pandemic actually did not increase 
And the reason is because of the robust federal response to the problem. Um, what were some of those responses? As I mentioned, um, government food assistance was increased. Um, you had universal free school meals and school meals in the, in the summer to make sure that children did not go hungry just because they didn't happen to be at school. Um, and also just to give any child, whether they qualify or not, a free school meal. Um, there also was some funding that was issued to food, emergency food pantries and places like that so that they could purchase more um, fresh food. Uh, so there, were, there was a big response that the federal government made, and it, it apparently had an impact, at least according to the head of the Food Security Project at the, uh, the Wisconsin Food Security Project at the UW-Madison. She believes that that robust federal response really kept a lot of people from going hungry during the pandemic. Yeah, so you mentioned the yeah, – I think you said one in five children in Wisconsin are in, are considered by, by, this, uh, by this measure to be food insecure and that that is higher than the national average. Why then – like why, why Wisconsin? What, what, is, what has led to that happening in specifically Wisconsin? I think that goes hand in hand with our uh, racial disparity issue here when it comes to food insecurity, which is also, it comes, you know, it crosses many, many levels in our society here in Wisconsin when you talk about income and employment and well-being, home ownership, uh, the list goes on, you know, criminal, um, you know, incarceration. There, there are just numerous uh, disparities in our society here in Wisconsin um, that mean, that, that end up showing that some people in our society are, are much more vulnerable. The state as a whole, the one in 12, is actually less food insecure when you look at every person in Wisconsin. But when you drill down to children and people of color, what you find is a higher level of food insecurity than you would find across the country. Yeah, then then kind of on the flip side of this, one of the topics that's been teased for the series is it's uh, it was written as the history of food assistance in the United States and how its greatest innovations are tied to times of crisis. It's no secret, of course, that we've been in one in in the pandemic. What then is this crisis's great innovation? Well, there there were several, um, and the question is, will they continue? One was the free school meals for all, universal universal free school meals. Um, that's one where there have been a couple of states that have uh, codified those and said, okay, we're just going to do this going forward. There's an effort by Democrats in uh, the Wisconsin legislature to do that, that they've been unsuccessful in pushing that bill forward. Um, and, and, you know, they face a high uh, uphill climb because Republicans do now and have for quite a long time run, run the legislature and determine which bills actually go forward. Um, so that that was one of the innovations. Um, the other, some of the other issues were making it uh, easier for people to qualify for the maximum benefit allowed under the um, food share program, as we call it in Wisconsin. Um, and these are the kinds of things that you know that were sparked by the fact by by the fear, the real fear, that because of the massive um, disruption caused by the pandemic, including very very high unemployment that we were going to very quickly start seeing a lot of people going hungry. And so the federal government swung into action, uh, implemented a lot of these measures. Many of them are now um, are sunsetting. As of the end of June, um, some of the programs are done. 
and Congress has not reauthorized, for example, the universal preschool meal program uh, for the coming school year. So these are some of the issues that we're looking at is, you know, what, what did we learn from these um, programs? Uh, what is their future? Um, in some cases, they don't appear to have much of a future because right now they have not been reauthorized. How long is this is this investigative series going to run on Wisconsin Watch? It'll go on over the next several months. We're going to spool out a story roughly once every week over the next five or six weeks. I'm leaving it vague because there are some stories that we may break out separately uh, from the series because there's just so much good material. We don't want to limit it. So um, so we will be looking at, for example, uh, ways in which people in Wisconsin have tried to grow their own food, not just your backyard garden, but some of these larger efforts to to improve the access to uh, healthy, nutritious food in Wisconsin and make it more available uh, to people, even people with modest incomes. Um, so, yeah, we have a lot coming yet, um, and uh, we will be spooling it out at least through the end of summer, probably into the fall. Now, you said about once once a week these pieces will come out. We've seen the first piece in the series. It came out, I think it was six days ago. Um, if you know when, when can we expect the next one to come out? The next one will come out tomorrow, uh, and that ha- deals with the history of food assistance. And that traces it way back to the 30s when it started out as uh, surplus commodities from farmers and uh, from food manufacturing companies. The feder- we, we had a twin problem of both surplus and hunger, and the federal government addressed that by making these commodity foods, like the big old blocks of cheese, if you remember hearing about those. Um, available, but but we trace it, it's evolved significantly since then, and it's gone through multiple uh, Democratic and Republican administrations. There have been many changes over the years, and this next story really traces that history and where we are now. Yeah, well, I can't I can't wait to read that when it comes out. Um, any anything else you want to add before I let you go? No, I just uh, you know you can find all of our stories on WisconsinWatch.org. Feel free to to uh, check us out. We have lots of other good stories on other topics as well. But I'm very proud of this series. The students did a really nice job, and um, once again, you know, really, really delved deeply into a, a topic that is of great interest to the people of Wisconsin. I've been on with D.J. Hall, the managing editor of Wisconsin Watch, who is overseeing the Beyond Hunger series on Wisconsin Watch. D, thanks again for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on community radio station WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. Here with my co-host, Vicki Idens. Thanks for staying with us. In the summer of 2020, Madison launched a pilot program to use goats to control invasive honeysuckle, buckthorn, and garlic mustard in its parks. Now, prescribed grazing has gone citywide. Feature contributor Sean Bull has more. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. I'm Sean Bull. I hate invasive plants. I know this is not a big, revelatory statement to make. Most people are not, at least openly, pro-invasive species. But realistically, there are too many different kinds of invasives for everyone to care equally about them all at once. 
The invasive species a person cares about are probably those they encounter most regularly. The freshwater fishermen may complain most about zebra mussels or Asian carp. Those who live down south may have horror stories of kudzu vines or Burmese pythons. And I, sheltered little Midwest boy that I am, hate the Japanese honeysuckle bush with a vitriol that I reserve for little else. This intolerance was instilled in me from a young age. Early in middle school, my class spent a weekend at a local youth camp. The trip coincided with what we were learning in science class, and as a bonus, everyone got some exposure to the great outdoors. I'm sure that was the more impactful thing for a lot of kids. I think we learned how to build fires and paddle canoes, but honestly, I don't remember any of that. Those activities were overshadowed by the stuff I was doing with the Boy Scouts around the same time. The main thing I do remember from that trip was our practical lesson in invasive plants. We were taught to recognize common species and learned why they were so bad for the ecosystem. Then we got to do our part in ridding southern Wisconsin of these pests. The counselor would tie a rope to the base of a large honeysuckle bush, and our little band of 12-year-olds would play tug-of-war. It was a lesson in both ecology and teamwork. We may have been small, but get ten of us on a rope and we could pull out huge bushes where the camp's pickup truck would just slip in the mud. Those one-sided games of tug-of-war lit a fire in me. Upon returning home, I noticed that invasive plants, especially honeysuckle bushes, were everywhere. Over the next decade, I cleared hundreds of them from my parents' three-acre yard, and I still feel I haven't done enough. If I ever quit this show, it won't be because I found more stable work as an actual paid journalist. More likely, I'll still be entirely unpaid, ripping up honeysuckle from the side of a country highway and having the time of my life. Perhaps 450 words into this rant, I should actually describe what I'm talking about. Japanese honeysuckle is a bush with smallish green oval leaves and a woody stem. It was first imported to North America from East Asia as a decorative shrub. I think this only proves that our ancestors had bad taste and should not be revered by history. Honeysuckle is an ugly plant. It has neither the dignity of a tree nor the delicate structure of a true ornamental bush. It does briefly grow flowers in the spring, wispy little yellow and white things that kind of look like tiny shredded daffodils. But there are so many prettier flowering bushes. Its one benefit in landscaping is that the plant grows quickly and grows just about anywhere. Of course, this is exactly how it got out of hand. Nothing around here really eats honeysuckle, at least not enough to hinder its spread. You can cut it down to the ground, burn it to a crisp, but it will grow right back next year. The only way to truly get rid of it is to pull up its roots, hence the Kids v. Plants tug-of-war games. But most people around here don't have an army of children at their disposal, so honeysuckle spreads uncontested. It's along roads, in people's yards, and in every Wisconsin park you've ever visited. And everywhere it goes, it chokes out native plants, taking away food and shelter from animals that call our state home. Well, mostly. Most grazers, Wisconsin's deer included, recognize honeysuckle for the garbage-tier plant it is. But goats, famously, have no standards. If it's green, 
it's on the menu. And for a city with a lot of green to clear, goats are a great asset just waiting to be realized. For the past two years, the city of Madison has leased herds of goats from a farm in Poinette. These goats work full-time, and the parameters of their job are fairly simple. Their owner sets up a long electric fence, and the goats roam freely through the acres contained within. Over days and weeks, the herd slowly consumes all plant life within reach. Once they've sufficiently scoured the area, they pack up and move on to their next job. For maximum efficacy, this process is repeated later in the summer. Just when the plants have used their reserve energy to regrow, the goats munch them down again, leaving the invasives depleted and vulnerable to the coming winter. The benefits of this approach are fairly obvious. The goats clear acres of parkland with no effort. Unlike human volunteers, they don't get tired or hungry and don't need to leave the site at the end of the day. They sleep right there, and what few local predators might be interested in their kids are kept out by the same electric fence that keeps the goats in. Plus, they're pretty safe in a group of 50. The only help the goats need is someone to refill their water and keep the fence in working order. Human volunteers might be better suited to remove invasive plants in areas where you have to be discerning, where there are native plants that still must be preserved. But in a lot of cases around Madison, our woods are so choked with buckthorn, honeysuckle, and garlic mustard that there's not really much worth saving. Such was the case at Acewood, one of two parks where the prescribed grazing program was first tested in 2020. Acewood is a neighborhood park on the east side of Madison, just south of Cottage Grove Road. Its human visitors mostly come for the normal park stuff, all of which is clustered on the park's east side. Amidst a mowed field, it has a picnic shelter, playground, and a basketball court. Beyond these, there's a moderately sized pond surrounded on three sides by tall grass. Along the west edge of the park and the pond are perhaps 10 acres of woods. Acewood Park is one of my wife's favorites. When we were dating, we would ride our bikes along the path that runs behind the woods, then stop when we found a gap in the honeysuckle bushes. Someone had half-blazed a trail, which wound from the path over to a little point on the pond's shore. On that point, a couple of Canada geese had built a nest, and every summer they would try unsuccessfully to hatch their eggs there. The shore of the pond was great for bird watching. Even without binoculars, we could watch ducks, geese, cranes, and herons, all going about their daily business on the water. This was maybe four years ago, but I remember thinking at the time, if I could just get rid of some of this undergrowth, this would be the best part of the park. Now, I'm so glad I didn't waste my time going out there with hedge trimmers. The goat's job is far from over, but it's amazing what they've cleared out in just a few summers. You can now walk freely beneath the trees. More importantly, the newly freed forest floor should allow the tree's offspring to start growing in their place, something that would have been impossible just a few years ago. The only other way to get results like this would either be a massive human effort or a massive application of herbicide. Compared with either of these options, goats are both cheaper and more environmentally friendly. Prescribed grazing has proven effective, and in a few short years, the city has ramped up from a herd of 40 goats in two parks to two herds 
rotating through eight different city properties. If you spend much time outdoors, there's a good chance you could encounter the goats this summer. Here's some things to keep in mind when you approach them. Don't touch or cross the electric fence. There are signs up, and of course, that'll hurt. But more importantly, it's their space. When I visited the goats to record sounds of them chewing, I was surprised to find they were kind of skittish. I'm so used to petting zoo goats, which aggressively beg for the smallest scraps of food. I kind of just assumed all goats were like that. These, evidently, are not. They're professionals, and they have plenty of food right where they are. I guess what I'm saying is you should treat the goats like you would any other Madison Parks employee. You can say hi, or take pictures with them if you'd like, but don't get in the way of their work, or feed them from your hand. It's better for everyone that way. If you'd like to learn more about prescribed grazing, I'll put some relevant links in the online version of this story. While you're there, why not get in the comments and suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover next week? Or you can email me at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we seem to be taking our weather in week-long doses this July. We're in a cool week currently, similar to the one we saw a couple of weeks ago, the last time I was on. Then last week, the one in between was hot and humid, and next week, as you may have already heard, is again looking hot and humid. Uh, This type of seven-day cycling in the long wave pattern is uh, not that uncommon, really, but it's sometimes particularly noticeable, especially when it lines up as it is currently with the beginning and end of the calendar week. Uh, In the current case, the upper ridge over the western and southwestern uh, parts of the uh, continent and the upper trough over northeastern Canada, which uh, earlier this month and through much of June were kind of pushing back and forth across Wisconsin at each other every day or two, have now taken on a slightly longer periodicity, kind of sloshing more slowly back and forth across the continent every seven days or so. And you can get a nice picture of what that looks like from above by having a look at the uh, water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT Weather webpage up in the featured graphics near the top. There you can see the upper trough with its leftward turning circulation, uh, clearly the dominant of the two features currently uh, across North America, having for the moment suppressed the upper ridge generally southward of about the 40th parallel, except for a small area out towards the west coast. Indeed, you can also see that the trough itself is actually made up of a series of leftward spinning gyres that are cycling southward and eastward around a larger locus of cold air that's up north of Hudson's Bay off screen. And uh, that uh, one such swirl, which uh, is the one that helped cool us Sunday after Saturday's 90 degree high temperature, is 
Currently, off to our east, while a second, more energetic swirl is diving southeastward across the northern plains and through southern Wisconsin, the cold front with that blew through here early this morning, lifting that narrow line of showers that passed and veering our southerly winds northwesterly for the day today. A secondary cold front is going to follow on behind that uh, later this evening, and that may again boil up some scattered showers as we get on uh, probably after midnight. But by tomorrow morning already, incoming surface high pressure should have cleared skies, or at least be rapidly doing so by then, after which will generally be dry and clear pretty much through the rest of the weekend. Uh, It'll be a bit breezy behind the cold front tomorrow, but as the pressure gradient weakens near the center of the passing high on Saturday and Sunday, the winds should lighten up a a good bit. Winds will be backing southerly then as we get on towards Sunday and Monday, and uh, all of the longer-range models have a weak wave passing us at that time, so that may be our best opportunity for precipitation coming up as we transition to warmer air next week. Otherwise, it appears the uh, warming will ensue really in earnest from Tuesday onward, And just how long the heat then lasts is not entirely clear at this point. Uh, A few days at least, based on uh, unanimity among the longer-range computer models, possibly out through the uh, ensuing Saturday, at least if we're going to judge from the pattern of the last three weeks. But anyway, back to tonight, the skies will continue to see diminishing cumulus through the evening with an uptick in cloud cover again then starting towards midnight or after. A passing line of showers, perhaps similar to the ones that passed this morning, uh, probably more scattered than that, though, will pass in the wee hours, uh, followed uh, by steady clearing then as we get on towards dawn. Temperatures will drop to the low 60s on west to southwest winds at uh, 4 to 8 miles per hour overnight. Clearing skies tomorrow morning should see uh, some cumulus regrowth during the warmer part of the day. Uh, those clouds will be short and pretty widely scattered, I think, though, given how dry the air column is looking to be tomorrow. Temperatures will reach the uh, mid, possibly the upper 70s, on northwesterly winds up at 8 to 15 miles per hour in the afternoon. Skies will be largely clear then in the overnight, except maybe for some passing high clouds with a low temperature in the upper 50s on lighter, more westerly winds. Friday should be mostly sunny with a high temperature in the upper 70s on northwesterly winds back up at about 5 to 10 miles per hour. We'll drop to the mid to upper 50s overnight going into Saturday on lighter winds coming down near calm overnight. And Saturday will be mostly sunny with high pressure passing with generally light and variable winds during the day. Those winds will reorganize lightly southwest as we get towards evening. And temperatures will reach the low 80s with uh, dew points uh, generally remaining comfortable around 60 degrees during the day. We'll be in the low 60s during the overnight and Sunday may see some uptick in high cloud cover. Otherwise uh, clear again with a high temperature in the low 80s on southwesterly winds coming up to 5 to 10 miles per hour. We are likely to see clouds increasing as we get overnight and into Monday, which is our best upcoming chance for seeing another round of showers. At the moment at the station down here on Bedford Street, the temperature is 79 degrees. The dew point is 57. Winds are out of the northwest at 6 miles per hour. Uh, Mostly clear, just a few widely scattered short cumulus up at about 6,000 feet. And the barometer's uh, steady over the past several hours. It's at 29.84 inches of mercury. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. 
We go now to the last week of July 1962 for twin tragedies that shake and reshape the city and university. Stu Levitan has the sad details from 60 years ago this week on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, the last week of July, 1962. The sad saga of the disgraced former Madison police chief Bruce Weatherly comes to a tragic end on Wednesday, July 25th, when his wife Inez shoots him in the stomach with his own 38 caliber revolver at their home in his native San Antonio, Texas. I just shot your daddy, Mrs. Weatherly tells her daughter as she comes downstairs to call police before driving across town to her mother's house where she is arrested. Weatherly, 49, dies about an hour later. Mrs. Weatherly, 43, tells investigators she did it because Weatherly had been drinking heavily and was, quote, sick, sick, sick. I couldn't stand it any longer, she says. God forgive me. Weatherly was the renowned young reformer in charge of the San Antonio Police Department when he assumed command in Madison on New Year's Day 1949. But he quickly became a divisive leader here, an aloof and rigid perfectionist who alienated many of his officers and fought frequently with Mayor Ivan Nestigan and the city council over his budgets and authority. And he was so suspicious that he put listening devices throughout police headquarters in the new city county building and even bugged his own home at 222 Princeton Street. In 1956, the Madison Policemen's Protective Association, to which all members of the force belonged, including supervisors and managers, voted unanimously to expel Weatherly for breach of trust and conduct detrimental to the association. Then a former officer filed 13 charges of misconduct against him, including improper association with his secretary and being drunk at the Edgewater Hotel. After a week-long public hearing, the Police and Fire Commission dismissed all charges as unproven. But in January 1959, Witherly smashed his squad car into a gas tanker while driving his secretary home after drinking with her all day at the Hoffman House on East Wilson Street. Police would long refer to the location, the intersection of South Stoughton Road and Milwaukee Street, as Weatherly's Corner. Weatherly suffered a head injury and was hospitalized on and off for more than two months. It was Mayor Nestigan himself who filed the formal complaint against Weatherly, charging him with conduct unbecoming an officer and other offenses. And all the while, Mrs. Weatherly, as vivacious and charming as he was rigid and withdrawn, supported and defended him. Finally, in April 1959, after another week-long public hearing before overflow crowds, the Police and Fire Commission voted 4-1 to one to sustain the charges and dismissed him. Weatherly failed to get the decision overturned on appeal, but he did prevail on a workers' compensation claim, as the State Industrial Commission ruled he was injured in the line of duty and that the city didn't prove he was drunk. Weatherly took a job handling security for North Central Airlines, but his head injuries were serious and lasting, and Weatherly developed a drug dependency and drinking problem. He finally had himself committed 
at least briefly, to Mendota State Hospital in 1961. The family moved back to San Antonio, where Inez recently sought to have Weatherly committed to a state mental hospital for drug addiction before he agreed to private treatment. He seemed to get better and had recently accepted a State Department position reorganizing the Brazilian police force. The couple was soon to leave for Sao Paulo. Charged with murder with malice and facing the electric chair, Mrs. Weatherly ignores the advice of her lawyer and appears before the grand jury for two hours. She knows what she's doing. On September 20th, the grand jury drops all charges. The weekend after Weatherly is killed, July 27-28, is set to be special on the UW campus. It's summer prom and a Union Theater jazz concert by the Cannonball Adderley Sextet featuring Nat Adderley and Youssef Latif. But it's not to be. Early Friday morning, UW President Conrad Elvium, 62, is already at work at his Bascom Hall desk. The first alumnus of the university to become president since Charles Van Hise moved into Bascom Hall in 1903, Elvium shared another distinction with Van Hise. They were both prominent scientists. Van Hise was a leading geologist metallurgist, Elvium an internationally renowned biochemist who isolated the vitamin niacin in 1937 and discovered it could cure the debilitating dietary disease pellagra. He's about to share a third distinction, as the only president besides Van Hyes to die in office. Already troubled by high blood pressure, Elvium is also suffering under the stress of his controversial dismissal of School of Medicine Dean John Z. Bowers. At 8.15 in the morning, he has a heart attack and dies an hour later at Madison General Hospital, with his wife Constance and son Robert at his side. The Daily Cardinal remakes its front page and is out hours later with an extra edition. Prom and concert are canceled. UW Vice President Fred Harvey Harrington, who is set to start as the new president of the University of Hawaii in September, is in Kyoto, Japan, teaching an American Studies seminar in the month before he moves to Honolulu. He rushes home, and on July 29th, the Regents' Executive Committee makes him acting president. Two days later, just hours after Elvium's simple graveside service at Forest Hill Cemetery, they make the appointment permanent, but need the Hawaii regions to release him from his contract. They do, and on August 6th, the full board unanimously confirms Harrington as the 14th president of the university. Before the university created the position of provost and then chancellor a few years later, the president was the local as well as the statewide face of the university, and this sudden transition from Elvium to Harrington affects the city in two ways. The scientist Elvium would likely not have named as chancellor the three humanities-based educators, Robin Fleming, William Sewell, and Edward Young, whom renowned historian Harrington does. All three have a major impact on the city during the protest era. And Harrington was made for this time. Aggressively expansionist, he accelerates the university's growth, putting ever greater pressure on city land use and housing. It was a selfless thing for the Hawaii regions to let Harrington out of his contract fewer than seven weeks before his starting date. Had Elvium died just two months later, after the school year started, they likely would not have done so. 
and everything would have changed. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Reporters were Reed Kamai, and Tegan Carter and Kristen Billings were on special assignment this week. Special thanks to feature contributors Sean Bull and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan spun the dials and mixed our sound seamlessly on air. Nate Weggie helped produce the newscast, and Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. <laughs>